thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight we are starting chapter 37, which is the beginning of the cycle of Joseph. Uh, before I take on this chapter, I'd like to also bring to your attention that chapter 38, which we will take on when we come back on Easter, and uh, Lillian, you might want to actually send a message, uh, is a rather, um, it's a difficult subject with some mature content. So if um, someone was thinking to bring children, younger children, maybe they'd like, they would not do it next, um, next Bible study. Right? It, the, the content is fairly mature. We're going to deal with some topics that are difficult and mature. So we'll, uh, hopefully they'll, uh, they'll, they'll leave that out. But tonight uh, we're starting then uh, this cycle of, uh, of Joseph. So if you have scripture with you, read with me beginning with verse 1. <clears throat> of chapter 37. Jacob dwelt in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. This is the history of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a lad with the sons of Bila and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought an ill report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they only hated him the more. He said to them, Hear this dream which I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bound down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him yet more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream, and behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamt? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his fathers kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, 
Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word again. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, I pray you, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. <clears throat> they saw him afar off, and before he came near to them, <clears throat> they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild beast has devoured him, and we shall see what will come of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Cast him into the spit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand upon him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers heeded him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he ran his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The lad is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and killed a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the long robe with sleeves and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob rent his garments and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to, com to comfort him but he refused to be comforted, and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So a rather sordid affair between brothers. The, uh, in, in the very beginning of this book, we know that... Jacob dwelt in the land of his fathers because his brother Esau had left. And in the previous chapter, chapter 36, we have seen the future of Esau. Essentially, Esau was settled. He had chieftains. He had a kingdom. He was, he made it. And here is Jacob, still a foreigner in the land he's supposed to own living on his own, having all his brothers, and now this. Look at the contrast between the two. Look at how 
according to human standards, Esau was much, much more successful than Jacob was. And recognize that God does not work on short-term basis. We tend to measure things in very short term. Our own lifespan, for instance, or maybe a century. God doesn't work this way. God works on very long term. So, as this chapter opens, Jacob is dwelling in the land of his fathers, but certainly not possessing it. Far from it. Verse 2, this is the history of the family of Jacob. Now you'd assume, or you'd suspect, that you'd get a genealogy that is similar to what you saw with Esau. The names of all his sons and their sons and the chiefs. And the, but verse 3 says, Joseph being 17 years old. And that's it. No one else is mentioned. Just Joseph. This is the history, the history not the story, the history of the family of Jacob. Joseph was 17 years old. Everybody else is left out. Very stark contrast done on purpose. So the, the overall, the overriding theme of Genesis is the fall of the firstborn. That somehow the providence of God does not seem to work through the firstborn as it was meant to be from the very beginning. Adam was the firstborn, and he flunked. And then down the line, Cain was the firstborn, and he flunked. And then from Noah, Shem was the firstborn, and he's the only righteous firstborn we know of. But if you push down, you get Isaac with his two sons, Esau, and Esau flunked. And now Jacob, and Reuben is already flunked, is the firstborn. And it goes all the way down through to Joseph, number 11. And we'll come back and revisit this. The line, the first line of kings of Israel through Saul came not through Joseph, actually, but through Benjamin, the youngest of all the brothers. Right? And then when, when God sent Samuel to the house of the father of David... The father of David had eight boys, not twelve, eight. And God made Samuel pass over the first seven. None of them were found to be acceptable and went to the youngest. And there was something else going on, obviously, here, which is the love story of God with shepherds. Joseph was shepherding the flock. So, he was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Joseph is a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Right? The first human beings to whom the Annunciation was revealed, outside of the close circle of Our Lady and St. Joseph and Simon and, and Anna and Elizabeth, etc., were shepherds. So there's a definite um, predilection on God's part with shepherds. Now shepherds, Deal with what? Sheep. And what is the defining quality of a sheep? Obedience, stick together, all that is nice, but that's not a defining quality of a sheep. Pardon? Wool, follow the shepherd. 
All that is nice, but none of that is a defining quality of a sheep. The defining quality of a sheep is that it is stupid. A sheep is stupid. Why? Because a sheep has absolutely no problem wandering on its own when it has zero defenses. Zero. That's it. That's it. I mean, rabbits don't do that. Rabbits are smart. If they are crossing a field, they know they have to go fast. Real fast. Look at the sheep standing right there in the middle. Right there in full view. Very easy for a sheep to drown. When it's full of wool. Very easy. Stupid. That's why also Jesus used the image of the shepherd and the sheep. Okay? One of my pet peeves is the image of Jesus holding this little lamb. Right? Of all the romantic series on Jesus, right? And everybody oozing us, not everybody, a lot of people oozing and finding this so cute. It is cute, but it's false. You they didn't they didn't use the image of a sheep because we're cute. That was not the intent here. The intent is it's easy for a sheep to get lost. A sheep takes a lot of work to be to protect. It needs a protector, it needs a guide. And yes, it has to follow the shepherd and it completely depends on the shepherd. On its own, it's gone. Can't survive on its own. That's what you have to keep in mind. So you know when the Lord says when he brought all the children to him, he said, do not let the children, uh, do not um, um, prevent the children from coming to me, for the kingdom, belong, uh, the kingdom of heaven belongs such as these. Again, we tend to project cutesy images you know, on, 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 on what's going on here. And the intent being, well, you know, a kid is cute and, and innocent and... And that's why Jesus used the image of a kid. And again, the romantic picture, Jesus sitting there, and there's a beautiful smile on his face, and all the kids sitting around, and it looks so beautiful and pastoral. Well, that's great. I mean, there's an element of truth in there that shouldn't be denied, right? Babies are very innocent. We should be like them in that sense. But that's not what was intended. What's the defining characteristic of a, of a, of a child? That's it. Dependence. Of, of, of all animals... From in the, in the animal order, the, the child, the human being has no instinct. We have zero instincts. How do we know that? You have a rabbit, a rabbit is born. A born an hour ago. An hour later, the rabbit is already able to feed. A week old rabbit will know which mushroom is poisonous. How does it know that? Instinct. It has in, that's why a baby rabbit out there in the wilderness can survive. Take a human baby, put it in the wilderness, and come back a week later, he's dead. Simple as that. We have no instincts. Why? Because we have reason, but it takes a long time to form. So we, what Jesus is saying to us, you want to go to heaven? You have to be like them. You can't make decisions on your own. You have to let go of that will of yours that is so intent on making decisions for what you want to do. You have to let me make the decisions for you. Because you're the sheep. I'm the shepherd. Okay? Same images. So anyhow, 
there is this sort of love story with the shepherd, and I think this is why, because it's indicating what he expects the firstborn to be towards his brothers. The roles are very clearly identified, not because the firstborn is the firstborn, because he would be given the grace of God, the authority to lead his brothers, and the brothers have to be led. And most of us don't want to be led anywhere. If you want to grow in virtue, especially the men, it's most of the men and the women. Men, listen to me. You want to grow in virtue? There's one word, one word, you must take out of your vocabulary and never say again, ever. I know. I know. Don't ever say that again. I know is a huge obstacle to your growth in virtue. Even when you know. Don't say it. Because you're completely missing the point. Somebody's trying to tell you something, and what do you do? You're basically crowing. I know. Why are you telling me? I know. What are you showing off? Your pride, your inability to be led, your unwillingness or desire to learn, or to show humility. You're showing all the things that say, I am not a sheep, I will not be led. I know. And women, you want to grow in virtue? There's one thing you must stop doing. You must absolutely kill that in your soul. Curiosity. Curiosity is a vice. And it's a really bad one. Because it leads to so many other ones. Curiosity is this habit of seeking knowledge for no, for no reason. And it starts with um, this sort of innate mechanism that women have of sort of sizing up somebody to see how they're dressed, what their hair looked like, if they've done it or not, and on, especially when you get into the church. Right? Especially you get into, this is one reason why the veil is so good, because it completely limits your, view, your, your field of vision to what's going on on the altar. It helps you focus on the essential and ignore all the stuff going on around you that is bound to attract you. Deal with the news appropriately. Don't read things that don't matter to you. And there's so much of it out there, tantalizing. So and so did this and that to the, these other people. And suddenly you're in the middle. This is all curiosity. Kill it off. It'll give you peace of mind. Get rid of it. Now, Joseph, oh, Joseph, being 17-year-old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a lad with the sons of Bil, Bila and Zilpah. Who are Bila and Zilpah? Bila was the handmaid of Rachel. That's why they're in this order. Zilpah came before Bila. But now, if you notice, the order is swapped to indicate that she had risen in importance because she was the one of the beloved. Right? Bila and Zilpah. He was, he was pal with the kids of Bila and then Zilpah, not Leah. Because the kids of Leah would have nothing to do with him. Who are the kids of Leah, particularly? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, all the big players. Right? You need to write them on, down on a piece of paper. You need to memorize this. You need to know who's who. At that, because it's, gonna cr- it's going to carry forward throughout all the Old Testament. You can't read the rest of the Old Testament and get into new even and fully understand what's going on with all these family relationships. Because at the end of the day, this is a book of family. It's a family feud from the very beginning. And even if we include Satan in it, it's still a family feud. 
Because angels are supposed to be our big brothers. They're supposed to be, right? Which brings me to another point. The reason why the firstborn continuously fails is because Satan wants to remake us in his own image. He is the firstborn in that sense, right? He's one of the high, he was one of the highest angels. And he was supposed to lead us into the worship of God. And instead, what does he do? He fell. And now, in imitation of himself, he makes all the firstborn to fail. Now, he was friend with them, and so he was already in a precarious situation, the 17-year-old. You can see how not very astute he was. Let's say not, not wise, actually. He lacked wisdom, clearly. Why? Because even though these are the only ones he could be really friend with them, he brought ill report of them to their father. He went in tattletale. Why? Because he's trying to position himself. He knows dad loved mom more than anybody else, and he actually, I'm his favorite. So, I'm going to make sure I'm keeping my position. It's either that or he was completely, he was innocent, but really naive. One or the other. Hard to say from this, from, from this point on. Maybe some of the both, both. We don't know. But it was not very wise. It was not very wise. That's why Jesus admonishes us. He says, if you have a problem with your brother, what do you do first? Yeah, you go talk to him first. He doesn't say, if you have a problem with your brother, go tattletale about him to somebody else. So talk to your brother. He doesn't want to listen. Bring some witnesses. Bring some other people who are also wise and talk to him again. And then if he doesn't want to listen, go talk to who? Yeah, particularly it'd be the priest or the bishop, somebody in authority. Not the whole congregation. Right? And then let them deal with the situation. That's the proper order. All right. Now Israel, which is Jacob, as you know by now, Israel at this point does not mean the whole kingdom of Israel. There is no whole kingdom of Israel. There's only one man whose name is Israel. Yeah? Keep things in perspective here. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children. Parents, do you have a favorite child? If you have a favorite child, that's a curse. If you have a favorite child, if there is a child in your household whom you love more than others, and let's understand what we mean by love here. You may have easier feelings towards one child than towards another, and most likely not because of the children themselves, they're innocent of all of this, but because maybe one of the children remind you of your sister or your brother, or an uncle, or somebody with whom you had a difficult relationship. And if this kid inherited the mannerism of that person who looks like them or has the same kind of traits, that unresolved dispute transfers over. It could happen. It doesn't matter. So, so, so your emotions towards this child may be difficult. But as long as you're acting towards this child... With love. That's all the child going to see. Now, fathers, especially Middle Eastern fathers, many of us have come from families where our fathers, for better or for worse, thought that in order for them to show that they love their children, they have to bring the dough, and they have to use the belt, and they have to keep the order, and take us two weeks on vacation a year. But they don't have to say, I love you. They don't have to say, I'm proud of you. They don't have to hug or kiss. Those are left to the women. 
Right? When you do that, you are actually um, blocking the graces that God wants to give your children. Because grace builds on nature. And your children need to, be, to know that they are loved. They have to hear it from your own voice. They have to feel the touch of your hands. It's very important that you do so. Always affirm your children this way, no matter what. No matter what. A hand on a shoulder. Son, I'm proud of you. Son, I love you. Right? No matter what, I'll always love you. They need to hear it. You need to hear it. Very important. If you're not doing this, you're failing your kids. Right? So it's very important for us men to express love. And not to stop doing these other things, which is really the tough love, which the kids need, to, need as well. Right? But we need to do both. Very important. And <clears throat> you, you love the children and you give them what they need according to their talents that God gave them and according to the need of the moment. And from their perspective, they may think you're being unjust or unfair or you prefer this one over that one or what have you. That's okay. It'll blow over when they grow up. But on the moment, as long as your treatment towards them is fair and you are caring for them and all of them, regardless of what kind of emotion are going on in your heart, that doesn't matter. You are loving them and you don't have a favorite. But if when your son grows up and he's reaching 18, you go buy him a new car, because he's your son, and when your daughter reaches 18, you go buy her a rickety old car, you're, being, you're playing favoritism. You're playing favoritism. There's no other way of saying it. So you have to be careful with that because there is consequences we're going to see here. Because he was the son of his old age, meaning that he got him late, but he also got him from the one he loved, what does he do? He go buy him a new car, right? Gives him a Camaro or the equivalent. A long robe with sleeves. Now, in most of the movies, if you've seen the, the, the kiddie movies about the story of Joseph or other ones, you see Joseph walking around with a robe that is multicolored. It looks like a quilt with lots of colors or a rainbow or what have you. It's not in scripture. All we know, it's a long robe with sleeves. The reason why this is brought up is because when you look at the word in the Hebrew, you go searching for something like that, and you see that in certain hieroglyphs in Egypt and in certain texts that come to, from, from us, from, Mari, from the, the Mari texts, the Assyrian uh, writings, there are descriptions of Arabs dressed with clothing which is multicolored. And hence it got transferred over to the clothes that Joseph is, is wearing, but it's never described. It's one of those things that kind of penetrates the consciousness of people, but it's really not from Scripture. Right? Just as, for instance, everybody thinks or everybody believes that angels sing. But nowhere in Scripture will you ever find a place where an angel is singing. They only speak. Very seriously. There is no place in Scripture where angels sing. They only speak. We sing. And you can go to the book of Revelation and scan it from beginning to end. And we'll see consistently angels speak and human beings sing. Uh, there is no singing for angels that we know of. And yet, in our consciousness, this thing is sort of encrusted that they actually do sing. Where it comes from is a good question. I'm not sure. In any event, he made him this robe with sleeves. So this is error number two. Now look at the accumulation of errors in this family. First, Joseph himself goes and tattletales. Instead of being smacked 
where he needs to be smacked because he's doing this, his father accepts it. What does he do? He rewards the behavior. Great. And then, and now, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his how did they see it? When they saw how he acted towards him. As I said earlier, children cannot see your emotions inside of you, but they will see how you're acting towards your children. And they'll call a spade a spade. They'll know right away. They'll know right away. And especially if you have girls. Girls keep a very close accounting of who you've hugged and who you've kissed and who you've sat on your lap and for how long. And if you've done something to one of them, you didn't do the other one. They keep very close accounting. They have a very specific calculator in their brains that keep accounting of this for a very long time. And when they're 14 years old, they'll remind you of what you didn't do to them when they were three. And obviously, by which time, you have absolutely no clue whether you did it or you didn't, or they're making this up on the spot, right? Girls have that very, very great need, and they are extremely able, much more than men, to know what's going on, to understand the balance of power in the household. So um, you, have to, um, you have to be aware of this when you're dealing with girls. Boys, for the most part, are absolutely clueless until it comes to the gun or the car or the you know, video game or whatever. Now, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. The very first problem we have is that this is a fractured family. This is a family with one man and four women. Therefore, he is their half-brother. Their half-brother. So today, if I were to do this Bible study, let's say, in the 60s, it probably would be a theoretical thing. We'd be talking about it theoretically. No, not so longer today. Broken families are very common. So you have the kids who... One, one man with two kids and another woman and a woman with two kids and they get together and so you have four <laughs> kids and they have two daddies and two mommies and sometimes they have more than two daddies and two mommies because it's not the first divorce, it could be the second one. And so you have, on a, I might, might have mentioned that to you, I was on a train and talking to this young woman about marriage and she asked me how many kids I had I said, and I said seven and she said all, for, all from, from the same woman and I laughed and she said what's so funny? We're three in the family, and my father was married three times. So we're one from, from three women. So I have a, I have a half-brother and a step-brother. And frankly, I couldn't tell the difference between the two, but be it as it may, uh, that's a reality. So this is, you, th- th- what I'm portraying to you is very common today. You can understand how it will, it penetrates society and increases the level of violence in society. The reason why we have more violence here than other places is not simply because we have weapons or we don't have weapons. That's a completely false debate. Right? That's not the right, the, the right debate. The right debate is the makeup, the health of the family itself. The breakdown in the family is what's causing all these social problems, more so than anything else. So initially, you have a family that's already broken up, and you have... Now, a father who, in the midst of a very competitive environment, picks his favorite. These men already killed other men. Remember? They sacked a whole city. So you're not talking about guys who have, uh, you know, who just go to, uh, I don't know, Kung Fu class every Sunday here. 
You're talking about guys who went into a city and killed a whole bunch of people in cold, bloody, blood. I mean, they killed. And Joseph, Jacob seems to be unaware of this. Okay, so by, by verse 5, we know we have a problem. They could not speak peaceably to him. Verse 6, he has a dream. Okay, so your son comes to you and says, Mom, I have a dream, send him to his room. And go talk to him there first. He has a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they only hated him the more. Look how unaware he is of what's going on. No clue. He said to them, Hear this dream which I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, in this, in this, in this context, any time somebody has a dream, it is taken to be an omen or a prophecy. Okay? In this case, it is indeed the, the, that the, these dreams are prophetic. They're going to come true. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him yet more for his dreams and for his words. How many times have we heard the word hate? Three. Three. Let's go back. All right. But when his brother saw, he, they hated him for, the, for, the, for that, uh, for that uh, robe with sleeves. Then he had a dream. They hated him the more. He told them the dream, and they hated him the third time. Right? And remember, in the Hebrew, there is no superlative. So when you repeat something three times, you've really maxed out. Now, what is this hate coming from? Not jealousy. Envy. What's the difference? What's the difference between jealousy and envy? Okay. Jealousy works this way. So, Fatty back there goes and buys a Camaro. I see Fatty's Camaro. I decide to go buy a Camaro for myself. And I pile up some extras. So jealousy seeks to acquire what the other has. Not what he has, but something similar to it and better. So Fatty builds a mansion, I build two mansions. Jealousy. Now, jealousy is often, or more, more often than not, sinful. But not always. So the Lord himself tells, Mo tells Moses... I am a jealous God. In that sense, jealousy seeks to protect what is one's own, and it is for the, the, the common good. Envy. Fatty bought a Camaro, and I'm envious. I go, and I punch his tires. I don't want him to have the Camaro. It's not that I want to have one like him. What makes me upset is he got it. So envy seeks to destroy what the other has. And envy is always sinful. Always. Okay? And what, does, what leads to envy or jealousy? Where do they come from? How do they grow in our heart? Curiosity. The flowering of Curiosity, when curiosity flowers and grows and it becomes fully grown, it's envy and jealousy. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. He's really got no clue. 
and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream, and behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. The sun, the moon, eleven stars. The reason why he uses this language, and notice this is the first time we see this language, which we see as well in the New Testament, used by Jesus in speaking of what looked like the end times. And the language that Jesus will use is things like, at this time, the, the, the moon will not give its light, the sun will not give its light, and the stars will fall. And because of our modern understanding of cosmology, we imagine he actually means it literally. So we try to imagine the sun sort of kind of exploding and the moon not giving its light, which kind of is curious for us because the moon has no light to give other than the reflection of the light from the sun on its surface. And the stars falling. We really try to imagine stars falling. We have a hard time with it because if you understand cosmology today, there is no up and down for them to fall. They can't fall. It means nothing. So we get all confused and we really don't know what he means. Notice the language used right here. Sun, moon, stars. So it starts right here. But it, is he speaking? Is, is Joseph telling them, I dreamt and I saw the sun, the moon and stars. And so the end of the world is coming. Do you have any sense he's talking about the end of the, moon, the, the world? So therefore, why is he bringing up this business of sun, moon, and stars? Because to the ancient, the sun, the moon, and the stars were their what? Clock. Clock. That's how they measured time. And when he says, the sun, the moon, and the stars are now around me, there he's talking about what? We just reset the clock. Now, in ancient time, in ancient civilization, when do you reset the time? How do you, how do you count? You count from the beginning of a dynasty. That's how you count. Okay? And when do you reset the clock? When the new dynasty shows up. So, with the Babylonians, they had their own clock. Right? And when they were overtaken later, when the Greeks showed up, well, the clock got reset. You're now on a Greek clock. And then the Roman showed up and the, and the clock got reset. In the Roman history, you don't see made, references made to, the, to Alexander the Great. <clears throat> right? And we did the same. We count since what? The birth of Christ. And in, in, in our case, it has lasted for so long that we take it for granted. <coughs> but today... There are, amongst liberal circles, people who are already talking, not in terms of B.C., before Christ, and A.D., and, and, and I have to say, English is really, really inconsistent here. B.C., English, before Christ. A.D., you go after... Yeah. After what? No, it's Latin. Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. Before Christ, Anno Domini. Somebody missed something here. I don't know where, but that's how it is. But these days, there are among liberal circles people who, who speak of what? BCE. Before Common Era. Not Christian. Common Era. And after Common Era. And if you ask them, where does this Common Era start? And why is it common? And common to whom? They have no answers to give you. They just want to erase this notion of 
BC, BC and AD because you know we are you know, the usual, right? The Muslims and the Hindus and the Jews are going to get really upset when in fact the Muslims and the Hindu Jews are not accepted at all by us using BC and AD. Right? Because they know if we can't use BC and AD, they can't use their own system either. Right? It's just a system that pleases only the atheists. So, that's what is going on in this dream. And obviously, since everything is now restructured around him, his father even understands that it touches him as well. So, he rebukes him and says, um, he's, he said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamt? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. This is what I have in English. Uh, but his father kept the saying in his mind. But by their action later on, we see that they were envious because they really sought to destroy him. Right? So, his, his father kept the saying in mind, and that makes us think that he rebuked him as a defense mechanism so as to prevent further dissent. So sometimes the best way to protect somebody is to actually punish him. Because you know how far the punishment can go, and you're still in control. If you don't, somebody else might, and this kid might get really hurt. And that's what he's doing here. And then verse 14 makes no sense. He's aware of all this dynamics, so what does he do? His kids are now pastoring the flock in Shechem. He's in Hebron. Right? That's quite a ways out. Five days journey. And he sends his son alone. He sends Joseph alone. And I suspect he might, must be thinking, it's fine now. Everything has been taken care of because I rebuked him. I can send him to him. I can send him to them and see what, what is going on. Right? In, in the sense that they should protect him. Verse 16, And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, I pray you, where they are pasturing the flock. And so the man gives him direction. No indication is given who the man is. Obviously the thought is that it's a theophany. It's the Lord himself who directs him to where he needs to go. Which brings us to another important point. In the cycle of Joseph, there is no um, direct... Um, there is no direct contact made between God and Joseph. That's why Joseph is not counted as one of the patriarchs. Because God does not renew the covenant with him, as he did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't with Joseph. But definitely the story of Joseph is, in a sense, the story of the Holy Spirit. It is the sense of the story of providence. And it is the prototype for every story. You could read every good story. Right? One thing that is typical of um, Catholic um, um, fiction is the presence of providence in the story. So, for instance, The Lord of the Rings, for those of you who have read it, is a Catholic fiction because of the guiding hand of providence. Right? Whereas in most Protestant books, providence tends to be absent. Why? Everything has been done on the cross, there's nothing else to be done, and hence this whole guiding of the Holy Spirit in our life through pain and suffering and sorrow leading us to where we need to go is not present in their psyche. They don't bring it up in, in good, good stories. And so he's sent over there, and they see him, and they say, here comes the dreamer. So before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. So this is fratricide. Again, we saw it with Cain and Abel. Cain was 
envious of Abel, and he killed him. And as a result of that murder, what happened? The family split into two, and you had really the people of the, uh, the, the people who are really worldly, the Canaan civilization, and then the, um, the, the children that came from Set became the people of God. And there was no reconciliation at the end other than in the flood, where pretty much everybody um, perished other than Noah. Here, what we're going to see is that this, this story shows us how God is going to act in a different way. The rift doesn't happen, but they're all reunited, which is really the interesting piece in the story. In a, if, this were, if this were to be a Greek tragedy, you'd see how it would now begin to diverge and end and maybe killing everybody at the end. Everybody dies, and it's one of those depressing stories that the Greeks were fond of. But it doesn't happen this way. Actually, at the end, they are reunited. Why? Because it's the power of that covenant that God had made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. He will give them this land. The descendant of Abraham will inhabit it, and they will be as numerous as the stars. This is important for the Jews living in exile on two accounts. This story is important for them on two accounts. The first one is important because it reminds them that even though their situation is really bleak, they're in exile, the temple has been completely destroyed, there's no way for them to worship God. Not only that, but the king, the king of Israel, the king from whom the line of the Messiah derives and has to continue to derive until the, the birth of the Messiah has been abruptly stopped. Because when Nebuchadnezzar came in 587 and took over Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, he took the king and he essentially killed his children before his eyes and then plucked his eyes and took him in exile with him to, to Babylon. And as far as the Jews the descendants of Judah, were concerned, that was the end of the line. Yet, the promise was made at the end of the book of Revelation and repeated for David that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until, it comes to whom, until he comes to whom it belongs. The promise of the Messiah. How can you have a Messiah when the line has been cut? The temple is destroyed. I mean, imagine the crisis of faith that this could lead people to go through. Right? Very much today, I mean, you can, if you look at uh, the Chaldean um, community, they're undergoing something very similar. I mean, there is a definite uh, and uh, willful intention of removing uh, Chaldeans from Iraq. It's very clear, and it's ongoing. So, if you're Chaldean, you might be tempted to despair of Iraq, of ever having a community prosper over there. Very similar situation, although not as bleak, because you can still go and worship. We're not tied to one temple. So, here they are, sitting out there, nothing, they're left with nothing, and the line from Judah is cut. What are they tempted to think? Well, maybe the line was not supposed to come from Judah after all. Maybe the line was supposed to come from Joseph. So part of the cycle is to tell everyone, no, 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 no. 
Joseph was a righteous man. Joseph was a great man. But the line does come from Judah. That's what the narrator is going to affirm at the end of the book. It comes from Judah. We, can't change, we cannot change what the Lord told us to fit our current reality. We have to live by the word of God. And the second, obviously, is to introduce the concept of redemptive suffering. Because as Joseph himself would say, the Lord sent me ahead of you to prepare the way for you. So he saw his suffering as a way to save his brothers. That is unique in old-time literature, in ancient literature, where someone sees his own suffering as redeeming others. Among the Greeks, it tends to be that the gods are capricious and cruel and um, random, and we cannot understand them. The Greeks were confused. There is no confusion in this text about who God is, what his intent is. There is definite suffering for Joseph. We see this man he met who sent him there. Therefore, it's deliberate. But it isn't the suffering that he deserved. It isn't something he did that triggered the curses of the covenant in this context. None of that. This is redemptive suffering. This is the first image, as the fathers would see, of Christ. The suffering of Christ, right? That piece they will miss. But some of the Jews will understand it so as to see in Christ the suffering servant of Isaiah. So he gets there and then what happens is that they, um, they take him and throw him in a pit. Reuben tells them, do not kill him. He wants to give him back to his father. Why do you think he's doing that? Why does Reuben take on that stance? Why is he protecting him? Why does he want to save his life? He wants to get his father's attention. Well, you know what Reuben has already done, right? He already went and slept with one of his father's concubines, affirming his authority as the firstborn. Now he's got the role. He's playing it. Right? They decided together to kill him, but Reuben said, wait a minute, I'm, I'm the boss here. Nobody kills anybody under my watch. Right? Had he not been able to achieve that position, he probably would go along with them. But now that he achieved it, at least in his mind, right? he's saying, no, 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 no. You're not going to do any of this. I'll take care of it. What is the point of the narrator? The point of the narrator is to show us already the ascendancy of Judah. Why? Because when Reuben has gone, Judah tells them, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Even though um, Reuben told them, leave him alone. What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers heeded him. They did not know that Reuben was going to save him. Reuben said, throw him in here, let him die. So in their mind, they're killing him. Judah says, let's sell him. They disobey Reuben's order, and they obey Judah's order. It's important to remember that Simon and Levi also assent to Judah's words, even though Simon and Levi are older than Judah. What is the point of this? The point is to show Judah's ascendancy, to show his authority which will be important to the Jews living in Babylon, to remind themselves it comes from Judah. So they're going to do that. So first of all, they see the Ishmaelites. Who are the Ishmaelites? Who's Ishmael? 
right? They're cousins, second degree removed, right? Ishmael is the older son of Abraham. Abraham, right? He's the older son of Abraham. And who are the Midianites? They're related to Abraham as well. They come down from Abraham. They're cousins. Look at this family. The brothers are about to sell the younger brother to their cousins. When their other cousins show up, kidnap him, and do the selling. Watch this. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. They're talking, right? Verse 29. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels, which was the standard price for a slave. They had standards back then on slavery. Look at the disaster. The brothers wanted to sell their brother to their cousins, and their other cousins beat them to it and made the profit. If you're not watchful in your own family, this will happen. Your children will sell each other will, 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 to, to, to strangers. I'm sure you know of at least one family where there's a feud over the inheritance or some sort of crazy story. Why? The parents were not watchful. The parents were not watchful. You must watch and be very careful how your, your, your daughters and your sons, your children are interacting amongst themselves. And the only way you can allow your family to grow together is if you are praying with them. If there is no prayer life in your family, you are introducing feud among your children. Because God is going to show you in your own children how you yourself have rebelled from Him. If you're not... What is piety? Piety is a virtue, right? And people don't understand what piety is. Somehow they, they think of a pious man as a guy walking always with a hat and maybe a scarf and afraid of the wind or something. Some sort of a weird picture like that. Piety is what? It is giving, rendering unto God what is God's. Giving God His due. That is the virtue of piety. Giving God His due. You don't give his God His due if you're not a prayerful man, if you don't pray with your family every day. You're not giving God His due. You must do so. You must pray every day with your family. Your kids must see you praying. They must know you as a prayerful man. It's a duty. So they just told him. Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in a pit. What does he do? He rent his clothes and he says this, The lad is gone. Not, the lad is gone. What happened to him? He was my favorite brother. I'm going to miss him so much. No, no. The lad is gone. And I, where shall I go? It's all about mini-me. Here we go again. It's all about him. Couldn't care less about Joseph. It's all about him. So, they took Joseph's robe and killed the goat and dipped it in the, in, in the blood and then gave it to her father. Her father ironically, tricking their father using the same trick that he used with his father. And so Jacob goes through this very painful process where he sees the garments and he recognizes it and he then makes the next step. A wild beast devoured him and then Joseph, no doubt, torn to pieces 
And so he is now mourning for his son, and he will not be consoled. In verse 36, he will not be comforted. Notice he says, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. So he refuses to be consoled. Um, if someone passes away in your own family, and, and by the way, this attitude that we see with Jacob is, is something that is very common, especially among the Middle Easterns, and it is horrible to watch. Uh, Middle Easterns in general have no clue how to deal with death. And they commit one of the greatest mistakes of preventing children from going to funerals. Because they're so afraid themselves of funerals that they think children are going to faint or, or just fall to pieces if you bring them to a funeral. In fact, children deal with it very, very well. I had my own, uh, my, my, my uncle passed away. He was um, in his 80s. And uh, when I went to, to, to Texas for the funeral, that was the intent of my, in my family. We're going to leave the kids out. I said, no, 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 no. You bring everybody over there, all the kids. And so the kids were there, and they, they had the coffin open, and they went there and stood in front of it and said goodbye to their grandpa. They were able to bring it to a closure, which is a lot healthier than locking the kids somewhere and letting them imagine this death thing as a monstrous thing that nobody can put up, and then they grow up being afraid of death. It's so dysfunctional, it's unbelievable. But then the other thing is that this mourning thing goes on forever. The, the Catholic Church is very clear. The whole mourning from beginning to end, six months. After six months, you get out of black. Out of black. It's over. Because if you keep on doing it, and doing it, and doing it, it's a slap in the face of the Lord. Remember, this is nothing more than, hopefully, a temporary separation. Bear with me. Just let me finish this, right? It's a temporary separation. That's all that it is. So you should get on with life. It doesn't mean that six months later, you're happy and giddy and ready to go party. Okay? You may still have sadness. You might still miss the person. You might still wish they were around. There may be times where sadness will come. And yeah, that's fine. But mourning per se is over. Move on. Right? So we need to readjust how we do funerals. And we need to readjust how we deal with mourning. Very important. The other point I want to make to you, he says, I will go down to Sheol. You understand that in the, in the conception of the Israelites back then, there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no resurrection, there is only Sheol. The abode of the dead, which is sort of a dark, murky, gloomy place that you go to after you die. The only thing you have is the hope of a good life here. And that's it. You've you got to realize the concept of the resurrection, the way we talk about it, and heaven, and hell, and a real understanding of it, is, in, 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 uh, is not shared by all the Jews, even today. Sometimes, unfortunately, among Catholics, this is what we do, this bleed over. Because we believe these things, we meet somebody, let's say a Christian, and automatically we project on them our own belief. We believe this. He says he's Christian. He believes like us. And that's why sometimes we're confused when we hear, what, you have to be Catholic to go to heaven? We think it's just a label. No, it's not. There's a whole core set of beliefs that you have to have in order to be in heaven and be happy in heaven. 
That's one of them. You have to realize this. So, you know, Jehovah Witnesses, you come knocking at your door, and they, you say, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, we believe in Jesus. Oh, okay, you're like us. No, they're not. They believe in Jesus, but to them, Jesus is just an angel. He's not the Son of God. The Mormon believe in Jesus too, but to them, He is one God. Among a whole bunch of other ones. They're not Christian. These people are not Christian. Okay? They only have the label, again. And when you look at Protestants, there is a whole ver- variation of belief. They believe this, but not that. It's very complicated. So guard yourself well when you meet somebody. And don't, don't assume it's okay. You know, Believe whatever you believe. And please, if you invite people to come to the church, be very strenuous with them, very clear, if not necessarily, if not severe, to remind them you're not Catholic, other if you're, if you're, unless you're an Orthodox, right, of the Orthodox faith. But unless you're bringing someone who's, a, who's, an ortho, who's of the Orthodox faith, faith other, that's the only exception. Other than them, these people are not supposed to receive communion. If they do, out of ignorance, nobody told them anything, they're not guilty of it. But you are. Remember that. So again, his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianite had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. One thing I will say, in closing, before I take questions. As we grow old, we side with Isaac, we side with Jacob. As we grow old, age has a tendency to harden our hearts. Why? Well, we become irritable. We have pains and aches. We might have a long history of what we consider to be um, failures. We may have some regrets. Life didn't deal with us the way we, we, we think should be fair. We harden our hearts. We, we can become careless or downright um, self-centered. So, for instance, I'm talking to some people who are dealing with the elderly. You hear them sometimes say they're regressing. They're becoming like children. And they don't mean they're cute now. That's not what they mean, Right? They mean children who throw in temper tantrum when things doesn't happen their way, and on and on. That's not a sign of old age. That's a sign of old age apart from grace. I'm not talking about, let's say, um, old people who are becoming senile, losing their reason. I mean, essentially, the brain is shutting down. There's nothing they can do. It's not their fault. Right? Talking of old age folks who've got their reason and act, like they own the world, and everybody's at its service right now, and if they have one tooth that is hurting them, it should be taken care of right away, no matter what's going on out there. And they don't stop asking anybody any question. They have no capacity to be interested in what's going on with somebody else. That's someone who's spent, and this person is spent, because during their life, they said, I know. They did it their way. Never dependent on God's grace. Never allowed their soul to be constantly watered by God's grace. So that they can grow old like who? Which saint do you know who was old when she died? Mother Teresa. And which other one? Some of you may know her and may not. Saint Rafa over there, Saint Rebecca. She was an elderly woman when she passed away. And she was in extraordinary pain. Pain we cannot even imagine. Because what happened in her case... And I'm not, still not clear what kind of disease she had. 
Pardon? Oh no, it's worse than her eye. This is just the beginning. Somehow, she, all her bones were detached from each other. So she had one of her bones stuck in her neck for six years straight when she was an old woman. And the, the flesh on her side rotted. Because the poor sisters, I mean, if you have an old person who's sick, at least you can turn them on their sides. In her case, they, there was no side left. There was no side left. She had hemorrhage. She would hemorrhage and throw up blood three times a week. And yet the testimony of... And yet the sisters fought over who's going to take care of her. They loved to take care of her. And she was the most cheerful person they knew. Well, what is that? Grace. Right? Grace. We're not supposed to become a weight when we grow older. We're supposed to be a source of um, happiness. I mean, we may be a physical weight because somebody has to care, about, care for us because we can't care for ourselves. Granted. But in the caring, if we are a source of grace, this person feels vivified. They feel that they're receiving something. They don't know how, but they're getting something. That's grace flowing. You know what? We start now. Lent isn't over. That's when you start to prepare for this moment. What do you want to be? Do you want to be the sort of crabby old man that nobody wants to care of you and they want to be out of your sight as quickly as possible because you're insufferable? Is that what you want to be? You want to be the kind of woman that nobody can stand anymore? You're just this very heavy cross that everybody has to bear? Is that what you want to be? You start now. Right now. Right now. You let go of your life. You surrender to the Lord. You work on all these areas that you need work. Are you praying truly? Are you, is, is God the first thing in your life? If you have issues with anger, if you have issues with concupiscence, whether it's with food or with lust, the best way to deal with them is stringent fasting. Fasting does wonder in these areas. Wonder. If you have problem controlling your eyes, if you have issues with um, your sexuality, it's disordered, it's not what you want it to be. Fast. Stringently. It will do wonder in your life. If you get upset and angry at the least thing, if you can't take it anymore, if you think life is too much and too much on your shoulders, fast. It's a one, especially in the season of Lent. It's a wonderful gift that God gives us. He fasted 40 days for a good reason. He didn't need it. But to show us what we need to do. If you hate somebody, if you hate people, I don't know, if you have issues with the Jews, the Muslims, the Chinese, the whoever... Fast. It'll do wonder in your soul. When you fast and you offer it up out of love to Jesus for what He suffered for us. Out of love for all the poor people out there who have nothing to eat. When you do it this way, God purifies your soul. He cleanses you. Start now. So that when you die your husband, your wife, your children, could come and say, truly, 
There was nothing we could complain about. If they can say that, you're in good shape. Because they're the ones who know you the best. All right. We st- so next week is, the, is Holy Week. Hopefully we will live it um, in close union with Jesus. And then we'll meet again on Easter. We'll now finish with a word of prayer and we'll take your questions. You had a question. Why is it six months before the church says... The church doesn't really tell you six months to take off black. Actually, the church tells you mourning should last one month. One month of hard mourning. Six months should be the... This is... Yeah, I should be clear. This is my interpretation on things. Six months is by which time you're really out of it. It's one month mourning for people. Like 30 days or 40 days that we do it. By the time you offer the 40-day Mass, you're done. Move on. I don't think anything is being preached on the subject. That's the problem. We don't, we, 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 we're having these, we just carry those things and they're not necessarily for our be, in our better, best interest. So there needs to be a real good reflection on the meaning of death and how we celebrate the death of the just. And we don't understand that, nor do we do it, live it the right way. So, yes. If you don't feel that you're part of your church, I'm going to say something that you may not like, but that's the truth. You only have yourself to blame. Jesus, through St. Peter, was very clear. He told us in the New Covenant, you do not need teachers. The Holy Spirit will teach you. What does that mean? It means that all the material in the church is available to us. Why are we waiting for anybody? Correct. Very good. But you know what? You might not be able to say have a weekly Bible study, but you might be able to put two or three topics around death together. There's enough books, enough material out there to help you put something like this together. And you'll be surprised what the Holy Spirit will do with it. People come to me sometimes and say, you said this and then and the other. And I have no recollection that I said any of the sort. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. And you become an instrument. He'll use you to help others. Don't be shy of this because you're not yet ready. You know what? None of us is going to ever be ready for any of this. But the answers are there for you through the Catholic Church, right? So even with your circle, just make one meeting and talk about death. Even informally, see where this leads. I really encourage you, if God is putting in your heart to seek for answers, He's going to give them to you. But they're out there. Okay? Yes. The sun and the moon does not symbolize mother and father. Correct. But it doesn't mean he realized that because there was one moon, one sun, in this case, and 11 or 12 stars. It was actually 12 stars, right? Uh, The problem, number one, is that Jacob had, in that case, there would have been one moon, well, one sun and three moons, if not four, because he had five, four wives, right? If it would be one moon, which moon is that? Which wife is that? There's four of them, right? But his, I didn't want to go through this, but his mother was already dead. Right? His mother had passed away. So which mother? He meant the, the whole family. Are you saying now you're changing the order to where the whole family has to bow down to you? That's what the meaning of it is. The way the ancients measured time is using the, the stars, the moon, and the sun. Right? Where do we get the word month from? It's really, in the, in the Old English, it's a month. It's from the moon. 
Yes. So all our calendar is based on the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, the way a dynasty is measured is by the beginning of it, they count the dynasty using the, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars. So when there is a realignment of these things, it indicates a change of political power. The power is moving from one dynasty to another. And why am I saying this is because we see this repeatedly in Scripture. So, for instance, when Isaiah speaks to um, when when Isaiah speaks to like, like for a number of oracles that he pronounced against different kingdoms, indicating their passing away, it was in terms of the sun will not give its light, the moon will broke, the, the stars will fall, meaning that your clock is broken. Daniel did the same thing when he was talking to Babylon to indicate your clock is broken. We're coming to the end of it. And on and on it went. Sure. Yes, exactly. They were waiting. So the Jews were waiting for an earthly Messiah that would come and establish an earthly kingdom of Israel that would last forever. That was not part of their equation. As a matter of fact, if you recall from the Gospels, the Sadducees, who were actually the priests, came to him and debated with him over resurrection when they gave him this example of a man who had married this woman and he died. And he had seven brothers and in turn, according to their law, she would have to marry each one of them. And all of them, all the seven brothers died and she died. And they asked him somewhat sarcastically in the resurrection of the dead, whose wife, who, who would be her husband? Trying to trap him. And he basically told them that's not how it works. Why? Because they did, they did not believe in the resurrection. No, no. This was the general trend. There are those who did believe because they understood this differently. So the prophets, for instance. Right? Um, and the, the, the remnant that God kept for himself, who, when Jesus came, realized who he was and followed him, those were not looking for an earthly Messiah. They understood him when he came. Yes, from Scripture. Yeah, yeah. It is in Scripture. I told you what they believed. I didn't tell you what Scripture taught them. There's a difference. Scripture indicated as it went through it. The writers of Scripture pointed towards the resurrection of the dead. How do we know that? The book of Maccabees. <clears throat> in the book of Maccabees, which the Protestant took out, uh, Luther took out, in the book of Maccabees, the Maccabees brothers pay alms and explicitly say, for it is good and righteous to pray for the souls of the dead. Why would you pray for the souls of the dead if there is no hope? Right? So remember, even within Israel, within the, 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 the people of God, you had those who, as we have today in the Catholic Church, right? there, there were sort of people of God by name or by tradition, human tradition, but they really didn't pay much attention to their belief and understood what it meant and how to live it. Just as we have it today, no different. And there are those who really took it seriously, the pious, the just, and those had an understanding of Scripture leading them to eternal life. The Holy Spirit has everything to do with it. The Holy Spirit was always at work. Yes, the Holy Spirit always worked through the Old Testament and the New Testament. The reason why we know that is because of the two stories of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, when he was in Israel, performed a miracle and healed one man of leprosy, Naaman, 
who was what? Syrian. It was not the people of God. And then he was sent to whom? To a widow in the region of Tyre or Sidon, something like that. And he lived there and her, her son died and he prayed and he, the son, rose from the dead. And she was not a Jew. And Jesus mentioned them explicitly by name. Now how could the, the Syrian man or this widow or later on the Syrophoenician woman or the, 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 um, the Roman centurion recognize Jesus for who he is even though they were not part of the people of God. The work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit continues to work through the entire world, always leading people from all over the world to God. Back then and today. It never stopped. Nobody comes to me unless he be sent by my Father. Exactly. Yes, and that indicates the working of the Holy Spirit, the constant working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, ever since the Spirit hovered over the, 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 the deep to create the world, the Spirit is always at work. What we have to do is, is that God, throughout our life, leads us to the truth. So, whether someone is a Muslim or an atheist or a Jew or a Buddhist, God is working in his life or her life to lead them to the Catholic Church. What we all have to do is respond to the impulse of the Holy Spirit to do good, to love our neighbor the way we should be loving God or ourselves, right? That's a natural law. Everyone has that impulse by the Holy Spirit to do what is good. And in our case, if we respond, if all of us respond this way, right? Uh, as the, the document Second Vatican Council clearly indicates, a person who follows the dictate of their heart and live according to the law, the natural law, the, the law, the Ten Commandments, this person can attain unto salvation even though they, are, they don't know about the Catholic Church. Right? Why? Because they are actually responding to the call of the Holy Spirit. And salvation is offered them. Now, ever since Christ instituted His Church, the Holy Spirit works particularly through the Catholic Church to give the graces to the rest of the world. Right? But yes, every one of us has to respond. Yes. Any other question? Very good. Then Jacob rent his garments and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his, his son many days. Is that what you want to explain? And then he said, Verse 36, right? Yes. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to, comf to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Sheol is the abode of the dead because they, they had no belief at that point in the, you know, heaven or hell or any of that. There's only the abode of the dead. Right? That's all there was to it. Any other question? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.